Welcome, everyone. We are drawing close to seven o'clock. Let me remind you, if you want to chat and ask questions, um, that you do need to join either via Facebook or YouTube. It is up to you, your choice. If you simply want to watch and you don't want to ask any questions, you can go to newarkupc.info and there click on the live beta card and that will allow you to watch. You can see the chat and you can also watch. Also mentioned to you that if you are joining us for the first time, we have a weekly broad, excuse me, a daily broadcast Tuesday through Sunday. And uh, most of them mm -hmm. are pre-recorded and then premiered for you. They all start at seven o'clock, but on Wednesday nights and Friday nights, they are live like this, where you can chat with us and we can take questions and give you answers and, and have a higher level of interactivity. And so we thank you for being here. This is our first in this new format. Wednesday night, we premiered our first Bible study live. And tonight we're premiering what we call Friday Night with Friends. And uh, we're looking forward to our time with Dr. Payton. For those of you that did not know he was going to join us, I will introduce him to you shortly. But as folks are gathering in, if you have not joined a small group, you want to do that. And uh, at this COVID-19 era, you've got to be in a small group. It is part of the key. These daily broadcasts are not enough. You need to be able to get into a small group where we meet using WebEx. And uh, you just want to get involved in that. So there's a card there to this join. This is how we're interacting with each other. What we're missing in our regular Sunday services. We're, this is how we're checking in with each other, seeing how everybody's doing week to week. You miss seeing each other face to face. This is, this is how you're going to do it right now. It's on That's these right. weekly small group meetings. That's right. So if you haven't had a chance to do that, you want to make yourself available to that. And uh, I encourage you to, uh, to do so. So without any further ado, I, uh, I welcome you to our first Friday night with friends. And uh, I welcome Desi, who is my co-host tonight. And we welcome our guest, Dr. Joey Payton. Now, most of you are, um, are familiar with Dr. Payton. If you're joining us, uh, if you've ever been in service with us, he has preached many, many times. But I want to give you a, a preview tonight into some other areas of his life. He has had a very colorful life. And I want to do it quickly so we can get out of the way. And so Dr. Payton has uh, numerous degrees. I'm not going to name them all, but he has studied at the University of Alaska. He's also studied at Wayland Baptist University. Where I met him is, has he earned, in fact, I think he's the only one who holds both the Masters of Theological Studies and the Master of Divinity from Urshan Graduate School of Theology, and then a Doctorate of Ministry at DMIN from Eden Theological Cemetery. Or, yeah, cemetery. That's funny, Peyton, isn't it? E Eden Theological oh, oh, oh. Seminary. Sorry about Dr. that. Dr. Peyton, anyway. we're two minutes in and he's already throwing digs at Eden. I Look at know, that. I, I already threw shade and I didn't even intend to throw shade. Anyway, graduated from there with an emphasis in practical theology and pastoral care. And his doctoral dissertation there was on providing pastoral care at the time of death. Um, he has also completed, in addition to that, four units of clinical pastoral education and three doctoral pastoral care fellowships in 2011, 12, and 13, um, each with an emphasis on something near and dear to us, namely small groups. And as if all of that wasn't enough, Dr. Payton, glutton for punishment that he is, went back to school for a second doctorate. And he is all but dead, oh, I'm sorry, all but dissertation, ABD, 
as a PhD candidate from the Assembly of God Theological Seminary in intercultural studies with an emphasis on providing pastoral care in intercultural settings. And we value his insights from that work as well as we as a multicultural and diverse congregation work to, to work together and live together and be in community together. So he's right now in the middle of writing his doctoral dissertation. So his interview tonight is the excuse that he has for why he's not writing, which he should be doing. Just, just in um, case we're not clear on that, he's in the middle of writing his second doctoral dissertation. <laughs> that is correct. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm an educated man. I will not be going back for a second doctoral anything. So just making that clear. Um, and his dissertation that he's working on now, his second one is on providing pastoral care to diaspora populations. In other words, dispersed peoples from around the world that are in places that are not uh, normally their home. They have made it a new home. He's been an ordained United Pentecostal Church minister since 1994, has pastored churches in Illinois, Alaska, and Maine for a total of 20 plus years. And he's also served four years as a missionary to the Yupik Eskimos on the Bering Sea of Alaska. He actually could see Russia, unlike Sarah Palin. Uh, he's also an Army veteran. Thank you, Joey, for your service to us. Served in the United States Army, also the Alaska National Guard. And his interests are chiefly his wife, Karen, his five children, two sons-in-laws, one daughter-in-law, 12 grandchildren, two great-grandchildren. The second commandment, that's a whole nother broadcast. Don't even go there tonight, Joey, or we won't be on time and teaching and mentoring new ministers of the gospel. So welcome, Joey. We're glad that you're here. You're not a stranger to us, but we're really glad you're here. And so I want to launch us to our first question for you, which is talk to us a little bit about your medical background. And this is kind of the launch into Alaska, what took you to Alaska, but talk first about some of your medical background and experience, because I don't see that in all of your degrees and your education. And yet, you have a fair amount of education and experience in in medical field. Talk to us about that. Well, I began I began my medical career in the military, where I first trained as an operating room technician, and then a combat infantry medic. I served first in the medical field in the military as part of the District of Columbia's uh, nuclear biological response team that was stationed in Fort Meade, Maryland. I then served as a combat medic with the 6th Infantry Division in uh, Fort Richardson, Alaska, or at Fort Richardson, Alaska. And uh, there I was became involved with the Alaskan Air National Guard. And, and when doing that, uh, they required me to get civilian qualifications as well. And I went and got my EMT-1, then my EMT-2, and then my EMT-3, and then EMT instructor. Uh, then I went and got EMT wilderness, EMT wilderness instructor, uh, and other many other certificates, ATLS, PATLS, um, and others uh, uh, that allowed me to work in, among, in the civilian population as a, as a military medic. Um, I also quite uniquely served in the Army's HIV education and testing team back in the 1980s when HIV was first discovered. I was among the first certified Army HIV counselors and spent uh, uh, many months and many, actually uh, more than a year, 
testing and counseling people infected with the HIV. During that same time, I began a pre-med degree or begin to compete. Um, Alaska had a program that uh, you could compete for and once you won it, they would pay your ticket through medical school. Um, and uh, so I began to compete for that and go to school. Of course, the more schooling you had the more education. And uh, so I became part of a pre-med program at uh, the University of Alaska uh, in hopes that they would fund an MD or in, an, a nurse practitioner physician's assistant. After, after leaving the military in 1988, I went to the mission field of Alaska on the Bering Sea. When I went there, I was an unfunded missionary. So being forced to work, I first uh, received a contract from the state of Alaska to write a book on HIV education for healthcare workers. You gotta understand this was the frontier for the HIV virus in the 1980s. It was funded by the state of Alaska and was used for many years throughout Alaska. I also ser began serving during this time frame on the Alaska HIV Education Speakers Bureau and spoke at conferences all across Alaska. I then went to work after completing the book for the Yukon Custom Health Corporation as the Director of Emergency Medical Services for the Yukon Custom Delta. I supervised and trained the emergency personnel for 48 clinics, the National Guard, and the Alaskan Scouts. This included clinics, fixed and rotor wing aircrafts, served an area over 300 miles long and 250 miles wide. For a frame of reference, that's roughly the size of the state of Maine. I also covered a significant portion of the Bering Sea. I also taught emergency medical classes during this time frame at the Yukon Custom Campus at the University of Alaska. Um, when I left Bethel, I took a church in Delta Junction. And while I was there, I continued to teach for the University of Alaska only on their Southeast campus and their Fairbanks campus. Uh, and then during the same time, I started my own EMS uh, education and consulting business. I worked also for the Seventh-day Adventist Health Corporation where I provided emergency cardiac care. I became licensed as an x-ray technician and a phlebotomist where I uh, provided on-call services to the Seventh-day Seventh Adventist Medical Group. Um, I also uh, was an ATLS provider on the local uh, Delta City Ambulance Company. And if that wasn't enough during the summer, I worked for the uh, Forestry Department, the United States Forestry Service, setting up level one fire uh, hospitals at level one fires throughout the United States. Um, in fall of 1995 or 1996, I was noted, notified that I had finally been accepted to the Alaska funded training program mentioned above. I was nearing completing uh, my bachelor's in emergency medicine, uh, emergency medical technology, and with an emphasis in emergency medical technology. Um, I was just about finished with that. I was notified uh, that I was accepted into their program and the continuation of my, I would be funded. The irony though is just a few months later, I was also notified that the program had been discontinued and my grant had been canceled. Um, I did graduate with a Bachelor of Science um, in Occupational Education from the University of or, or Wayland Baptist University with an emphasis in emergency medicine. And, uh, but at that time, basically my medical career came to an end. I felt convinced at that time that God wanted me to spend 
full-time in pursuit of, uh, of, of religious education and, 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 an ac and pursuit of ministry. So that kind of a short, there's many, many small things I could have said. Um, I won't at this time, but uh, uh, that's the, the thumbnail sketch. All right, so Dr. Payton, I have a quick question. How yep. old were you when they discontinued that program and your medical career kind of wrapped up? How old were you? Uh, about 37, 36. So I would like it noted to the audience that he was once a young punk that had much to teach others as well. So he could have been kinder to the young punk that had much to teach him. All right. With that said, that's just a side note, little inside joke there between me and Joey. So here's my big question for you, Joey. Talk to us on a serious note with all of that experience, some of it frontline, some of it dealing with disease that's unknown. HIV in the 80s, for those of you that remember, was a massive disease of unknown. We didn't know how it was transmitted. We didn't know what happened. Talk to us about what you see going on with COVID-19. Just thoughts and opinions. I'm not asking for a medical diagnosis. We're not going to hold you to it. You don't need to go get you know, insurance to cover your, your opinions. <laughs> Just share some thoughts for maybe about five minutes of what you think we're in the middle of and what we're dealing with. Well, the first thing that comes to my, to my mind is that most of us, for most of us, the missing piece in understanding COVID-19 is that it is a novel or new virus. On one hand, medicine has understood viruses since their discovery in the 1800s over 100 years ago. While yes, viruses do have certain predictable characteristics, they also have novel characteristics that are unknown initially. Another thing that makes some, vi some viruses more deadly as in the case of COVID-19, is that they are easily transmittable. So the problem with COVID-19 is both that it is highly transmittable and unknown to science. Remember now, four months ago, this virus, though already rapidly spreading throughout the world, was unknown, unheard of, and unidentified. In four months, we have identified the virus, begin a search for treatment, and are now testing phase one vaccines. This is an unprecedented time frame and because in the case of HIV and Ebola and most other uh, dangerous viruses, it took years to identify the virus and several more years to develop a treatment. Many older viruses of which HIV is, is one still doesn't have a preventive vaccine. Some previous uh, viruses they only infected a limited part of the population, and therefore there was no motivation to identify or treat or develop a vaccine. What has made this one difference is that there has been no discrimination in its infection. It has infected the young and the old, the rich, the poor, religious, non-religious, whatever faith, it's infected them all and every other aspect of society. Pandemics, though, are deeply rooted in the history of our world. And my, my earliest days, personally, in the medical field, were training uh, for, for uh, that inevitable pandemic that would darken our world again. However, we went a very long time without such a infection. It's not... It's, not, it's been since 1918 
that the influenza virus that killed millions at that time, we, we haven't really had much worldwide pandemic since that time. So in the meantime, we got lazy. We let our guard down. We let our resources become outdated or depleted. We got overconfident, not just one, but the whole world. Not just doctors and politicians, but parents, communities, churches, we all went to sleep. It's my opinion that while science will break every speed record and take every risk to understand the virus, expecting a treatment or a vaccine before next year would be foolish, over-optimistic, and extremely dangerous. While we, are, while we pray and wait for an effective treatment and vaccine, we need to do so with godly patience and thankfulness for the priorities that have been, that are currently being given to understand this virus. So my points on the virus would be this. Number one, COVID-19 is a novel, novel rather virus. So therefore let us pray that science discovers and understands both a treatment and a vaccine. Number two, we should join we should not join the ranks of those conspiracy hunters and fault finders searching for someone to blame for our collective failure to be prepared for this pandemic. And third, finally, we should not be surprised if a vaccine takes longer than one year. Finally, in all of this, my advice would be thus. Let the church show love that is patient and kind. Love that is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. A love that does not demand its own way. It's not, ir uh, it's not irritable. It keeps no record of being wrong. Love that does not rejoice in injustice, but rejoices when truth wins. Remember, love never gives up. It never loses faith. It's always hopeful and endures every circumstance. All right, just so everybody knows, Dr. Payton knows the questions I'm gonna ask him, but I did not coach him on his answers. So I wanna be very clear that I really wanted his opinion. I value his preaching, I value his teaching, I value him as a colleague. Uh, I value the fact that I had a little part and it was a little part in his education, <laughs> which education, so many of them, um, but, I really did want to know his opinion and what we're facing here. So bottom line is, is this is not something to be taken lightly. This is a serious issue we're facing. 75,000 Americans are dead. 75,000. Within a week from now, it'll be over 100,000. That's not to be taken lightly. Absolutely. I personally know people that have died I personally know many, many people that are suffering. I have friends that have been um, intubated for the last literally month and a half. It is a very serious disease and we need to take it serious. Amen. So in light of that, allow me, if you will, Dr. Payton, to pivot, given that we're going to take it serious. And uh, if you're a part of the Newark congregation, you already know that we have. I trust that you understand. I trust that we have and we'll continue to communicate to you about the choices we're making and how we're taking this serious. We're not worried about heaven. 
we're worried about living this life and being able to be a part of the kingdom. And so I, I want you all to live. It's as simple as that. So talk to us a little bit. You have some background in education, some experience, and you know about us and our journey. What's What do you think about, and, and make this short, because I want to get to some stories about, about Alaska, but what do you think the role of small groups in this season is? What's the importance of it? What's the role? Well, that's really a huge question and not one that's answered easily, but I'm just going to mention a few things that come immediately oh, to mind. You didn't, you didn't expect me to ask you questions that were easy to answer and succinct, <laughs> did you now? Come no, I, did, I didn't expect that. <laughs> the first thing that came to my mind in thinking about this question is that small groups are adaptable. They work literally in any situation. It doesn't matter whether you are in a frozen gulag in Russia or you're imprisoned in China, um, two or three people make a screw, a, a, a small group, and, and you can easily adapt. You, you, you can't do, I know everybody's trying to do church with hundreds of people watching one man or two or three people stand up and sing and one man preach, and that has a place. I'm not trying to criticize that. I'm enjoying some of those as well. But really, as far as the kind of thing that could feasibly replace uh, the interaction is a small group. Obviously, Zoom is designed for 10 to 12 to 15 people at most. Um, beyond that, it's not effective anymore. The second thing that came uh, to my mind in, in why small groups in the time of COVID-19 is that it's easier to maintain relationships in small groups. It's tough work. And I could argue that even if you go to a big church and we don't have no virus and we all go to church and, and whether you've got 200 or 500, you really still only have a small group. Even if, you, even if your church doesn't do small groups, you have your clique. You hang out with the same five or 10 people. Why? Because it takes work to build those kind of relationships. The interesting thing is in this kind of a time, technology is limiting people to have relationships with a handful of people. So any church more than 25 needs to take you. Uh, another another uh, thing that we need so bad as a people is, is, uh, is uh, the ability to communicate. Pastor Steve cannot communicate with 200 people not effectively. And so small group allows him to communicate to a small group, uh, to a group of uh, small group leaders and those small group leaders uh, then can communicate to, to the groups and check on the groups and therefore people. Uh, another, another aspect of small groups that is so necessary, and this is true whether we're in COVID-19 or not, and that's pastoral care. Arguably, if all you do is go to church twice a week or three times a week and sit with 200, 400, 500 people, you are both not getting any pastoral care and you're not giving any pastoral care. That's a pretty scary proposition. I'm not sure how effectively you can serve God without both giving care and getting care. It also, a small group allows for a platform for teaching and learning, a platform for reflection uh, that is really better than the congregation 
the teach one, see one, do one, and then, or the each one, see one, do one, teach one. Those of you that have ever been in education, you've probably heard that. Each one sees one, does one, and then teaches one is much easier in a small group. You can't do that in a, in a, in a large group. Um, and then, and then the last thing I'll mention is small groups provide a place for doing church where you're living. It's very, let me put it this way. It's easier to do church if you want to say it's doing church in an artificial atmosphere like a building. Because you could put on the right suit of clothes. You can smell good. You can shave good. You can comb your hair. You can be all pretty and dolled out. You can even control yourself to say the right words for an hour or two. But that's not where you're living. Learning to do church in a small group is doing church where you're living, where your troubles are, where your vulnerabilities are, where your heartaches are, where your disappointments are where your embarrassments are. We need to learn to do church where we're living. I have never as a pastor judged people on how well they come to church. Sometimes that's just an example of how good of a, of a, of, of a faker or how good of, of an imitator they are. I wanna know how well they're doing church when somebody's dying, when somebody's crying, when somebody's fighting, when somebody, you know the rest. I'll let it go with that. There's many other things I could say about small group. Um, so it's something that's near and dear and passionate uh, and a passion of mine. Um, I think we need more of them. I think churches that had small groups when they started this, when the virus came out, are doing better today and healthy. I don't, I don't, that's not an academic study. But just from an observation standpoint, churches that already had small groups is doing better than churches who's refused to become involved with small groups. Steve? I can tell you, uh, Dr. Payton, that I, as a pastor, cannot tell you how thankful I am that we uh, had this, this past April, we celebrated three years, and I cannot tell you how thankful I am that somebody was listening to God, and I was part of that process, and there were others that we had small groups in place because I can't even imagine what this would look like. It's been a boatload of work anyway. So I can only imagine what it would look like without the small groups. All right. Now the congregation is going to think I just came in with a big old bat to whack them upside the head. And for most of you, I did. I just made a point to you. Uh, this is the last part of this week where we've been looking at vulnerability. And uh, if you haven't caught the point, you need to be in a small group. You need to engage in your small group. Stop looking for the sanitized Christianity. Let's do real Christianity, Christianity where you live, and, and let's get to work on it. So I saved the best for last, though, all right? So the tough stuff we stuck up front, that's kind of my style. Take the bitter pill first, take the sweet stuff second. So Dr. Payton, tell us a couple of stories that comes from being literally a missionary to a people that while they're a part of the United States, they are as different from us as anything you can get anywhere in the world. Talk to us about your time with the Yupik Eskimos. Tell us a couple of stories. I have heard folks literally dozens of these stories. They're fascinating. The biggest problem is going to be to get him to tell them short enough 
and succinct enough that we can leave time for questions and answers. So Dr. Payton, let me give it to you. Tell us some, tell us some interesting stories from your time in, in Alaska. Well, for tonight, I'll try to center my stories around one idea or one thought, and that was um, the, realizing the need for some kind of a portable baptismal tank. Um, my understanding of that evolved over the first couple of years that I was there. Of course, when I first got there, and even before I first got there, you know, I wasn't first thinking about baptisms. I was thinking more about Bible studies and, and where am I going to have church and those kind of things. But my first story about baptism among the Eskimo people was the, uh, the night that I was commissioned by the Alaska District of the United Pentecostal Church. The, um, there was a group completely unrelated to the United Pentecostal Church at the time, uh, knew nothing about the fact that I was coming as a missionary, actually took their fishing money and chartered a plane because they had got a revelation of the need for baptism. Now, I, I didn't understand how big this was, but in the land of the Eskimos, due to a couple of things, number one, water is either very, very cold or it's very, very frozen. And neither one are very conducive to baptism. What well, water is generally warm is, well, as you'll see later in the story, not necessarily something you want to baptize in. So they, have, on their own, got a revelation in a village of Eek, which is right at the mouth of the Kuskokwim River. They got a revelation for the need for baptism. And the group, about 15 of them, chartered a plane and took a plane from Eek, Alaska to Anchorage, Alaska, about 400 miles. They landed there on a Friday morning. They only had a couple days. Their sole purpose of being there was to get baptized. They begin to call. To make a long story short, nobody would baptize them. They knew nothing about Jesus named baptism or anything until they got a hold of uh, District Superintendent uh, uh, James Blackshear. Um, and he immediately knew that this was a God thing. And he said, I'll tell you what. He said, tonight we're commissioning a missionary to come to your area. And if you come tonight, he'll baptize you. And we're going to surprise him with this. And so when I went to the commissioning, I baptized about 15 people that night in Jesus' name. These became the first core group. But I didn't understand the implications of the desperate need for baptism at this, or, or for water to be baptized at this point. Until I finally got to Bethel, about nine months later, eight, nine months later, I finally got on location. It was then summertime, the next summer, and I was there. And my first baptism there was for a, pe a person by the name of Peter Nagaziak. Um, he also had served in the military with me. And so I had a previous history. And once I arrived there, I was able to capitalize on that. He got the Holy Ghost. Um, there was no baptismal tanks. There was no swimming pools. There was no large uh, containers of water. But there was a river. It was July. Um, that was flowing by. The river at Bethel, Alaska was, is over a mile wide. So I just thought, let's take Peter down to the river. We stepped off into that river. Of course, he just came along like a new convert will, just trusted me to know what's best. And immediately when I stepped off in the water, I knew two things. Number one, I noticed that the water was very cold for July. I later found out that it flows around 36 to 38 degrees 
in the middle or at the peak of the summer. The other thing I, did, I noticed was that it flows very, very fast, between 40 and 45 miles per hour. Difficult to stand up in waste deep water. Well, I baptized Peter and the guys there, continued to baptize there uh, until later in that fall, it began to freeze. Um, didn't really know what I was going to do. Began to realize that I have a problem with baptisms. Uh, need to figure out how to baptize people. But during this time, I got a call to go to Kotlik, Alaska, which is at the mouth of the Yukon River. Um, it was now about December time frame. I arrived there, uh, began to preach and teach and um, gather a group uh, there together and teach them about God. And while I'm teaching them, uh, in the middle of the second day, uh, suddenly through the door bust five teenage girls. And I'm not going to try to explain theologically this story. I'm just going to tell you this story is what happened. This is what they said. They said, we were, we were across the creek or across the Yukon River. If you know anything about Kotlik, it's actually built on three different pieces of ground separated by rivers or tributaries. But of course, it's frozen. You could run across it. Um, these girls were having a seance before they intended to collectively commit suicide. Um, they wanted to talk to one of their grandmothers before they died to make sure they were what they were doing was the right thing. And so they were having the seance and some spirit or something rose up in the midst of this seance and said, go across the river to Peter's house, again, it, it, not the same Peter, but a different Peter, very common name among the Eskimos, Peter Ayunak, uh, I believe is his last name. And, and there'll be a man there that'll tell you what to do. Well, they were scared, they were petrified. They run over there, I was there, I began to tell them, um, talk to them about repentance, they wanted to repent. Then I told them about baptism without thinking, there is no water here that's not frozen. Now we, you can thaw enough water to drink, but it's really difficult at 60, 40 below zero to thaw enough water to baptize people in. So immediately after telling them about baptism, they wanted, they wanted to be baptized. Well, there was five of them. Um, this may sound ironic, but I talked three of them out of getting baptized. I truly tried hard to talk all five out about getting baptized, but I would come back. Well, no, they didn't want me to come back. I wanted to get baptized right now. And so somebody had the bright idea, why don't we take them down to the watering hole in the Yukon River where we, where we have an ax, we chop the ice open every morning so that people can bail their water out. We'll go down there and chop, chop a hole in the ice. It's about three foot thick at this time of the year. And you can baptize them in the Yukon River. Well, young and dumb, I was, I did have a pilot with me and I, told him to we tied a rope around my waist and I stepped off into that ice hole it was about 35 below zero outside I was instantly in hypothermia instantly numb um, there was no preliminaries there was no you know it, you know it, by the authority of the word of God and my commission or ordained as a minister of God and the authority of whatever. No, buddy, I turned around, I turned around, grabbed those two girls and stuck them under that water and pulled them out. By the time I baptized two, it probably took about 10 to 15 seconds 
I was already too cold to get out of the water by myself. They took me out of that water, had to transport me to the nearest building and rewarm me up. But if I wasn't aware by then that we needed a solution, I knew then. Well, back in Bethel, where our headquarters church was, we were desperately in need of a, of a new building. And that's a story for another time. We finally got a new building. God gave us a $200,000 building for a very small amount. We literally, uh, for probably around forty dollars to $45,000, got this new building. And it was in the industrial part of Bethel where there was factories and stuff. So we weren't going to bother people by having church and stuff all night long. And, um, and so we got it, man, we we're going to have church, man. We opened up that warehouse. I discovered the very first day that I was over there looking at it, that right next to the church was this relatively not so cold stream that was flowing by the, by the church. And I thought, how convenient. This is not near as cold. I thought this is flowing in off the Delta and it's not, it's not cold like the, the, the Cuscoquim is. And therefore, um, man, we got, so man, our first church, we were packed out, probably at 150 people there. And we were just, man, I started preaching baptism. I wanted to baptize somebody in that creek so bad. And right in the middle of the service, I've had this inspiration of faith. And I just said, if you're interested in baptizing, getting baptized, follow me down to the river. Well, I walked down to the river, down to that creek next to the church, right, waded right out of the water and turned around immediately. Cars were stopping on the road that was right there. There was a bridge right there and people stopped and crowd. The crowd very quickly grew from 150 to 200, 250 probably or more. And um, people started coming out and then I started baptizing people. Man, this was the greatest day of my ministry, one after another. Um, I baptized a, a Moravian minister, pastor, his wife, um, other people just came. Man, it was powerful. It was great. About the 14th or 15th person down into the water was a very sophisticated, very uh, well-known lady, um, educated lady. Uh, she came wading down. Her, her father was the Moravian pastor. And um, she said, you know, she said, Brother Peyton, she said, you've convinced me of this Jesus name baptism. And if this is good enough for my father, it's good enough for me. So I want you to baptize me. But she said, maybe you should know that you're baptizing people in the sewage lagoon. Once again, I realized that, wow, we needed some other way to baptize people. Well, I had a dream about a baptismal tank. We won't go into detail. Uh, about it but it really was was almost seemed impossible it looked like a baby crib with a with a plastic sheet liner and we were able to baptize god gave me a dream about it i immediately built it immediately actually while i was testing it the first time somebody knocked on the door um, from the village of Kotlik, and man i was able to baptize her i returned to the village of Kotlik about a week later with this baptismal tank and there i baptized uh, more than a dozen people uh, one was a denominal pastor in the village of Kotlik and, uh, and many other people in that town. Um, uh, quite, quite an experience. So that's my baptismal stories. Um, I, maybe I'm hard, hard to get through to, you know, you should have, I should have caught it when I was, uh, that 15 people would be desperate enough to fly to Anchorage 
at the cost of thousands of dollars just to get baptized, but no, that wasn't enough. And then the swift water, Peter Nagazek didn't teach me, and the frozen pond, even though that was getting pretty desperate at that point, it took a sewage lagoon. And uh, thankfully, you know, maybe a sewage lagoon is a good place for, for our sins, but probably not for our health. Thankfully, nobody got sick. Um, but for many months after that, even years after that, I was teased by the residents of Bethel about baptizing people in the sewage lagoon. We did get this portable baptismal tank. It was collapsible down. It could go into a five-gallon bucket. It could then be put together kind of like Lincoln Logs type of an idea. And uh, we baptized. I baptized well over 100 people in that tank. And uh, I could tell you many more very serious and funny stories about baptizing in that tank but we'll save those for another day. So, so you're telling me, Dr. Payton, that those who come up and they see a bug floating in the baptistry and want to know why it hasn't been cleaned, they really need to get their priorities straight because this lady's getting baptized in the sewer street. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Context, it's all about context, right? Yes, <laughs> and you know, you know, it really was hard to come back from the mission field or from that particular mission field and um, and 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 be patient with uh, with westernized americans you know that you know when you see people come to church on a snowmobile at 65 below zero and then some people can't come to go to church because it's raining it's very very frustrating um and it's very hard to adjust back to to western society uh, but they were a hungry people, and they're still hungry people. Great revival still going on in Western Alaska uh, to this day, and I'm thankful for that. Um, and I have have had a small part of its beginning. Yeah, I I uh, I've told the church this that they have to give me time to acclimate because whenever I go to Africa, when I come back, I am not a very good pastor because I have absolutely no patience for their pain and suffering. Because the comparison, there's no pain and suffering. So I'm not a good pastor for at least several weeks until I reacclimate because I just don't have the patience <laughs> because yeah. of the of the contrast. Uh, we have it so, so, so easy here in North the, America. The good thing about the Eskimo people was there are no roads between the lands of the Eskimos and the lands of the rest of the world. Um, there's only one way to get there, and that's to fly. You can't even boat there. Uh, you could, can take a barge, but it takes almost a year uh, for a barge to get there. So you, it, Or you could take a big ship from Japan. We've got ships in there from Japan, but there's just no way other than flying. So you don't have to worry about people going to another church or to a convention or something and saying, wow, they do it different there. Um, so you know, very quickly we developed our own customs and we had church literally sometimes all night, um, sometimes for several days. And, um, you know, and I'd have Westerners come, friends of mine would come out to see what was going on and they would say, why don't you tell them? Why would I tell them? If they want to have church, you tell them. I mean, there were times that I would, we would have church and I would, I would preach until I was exhausted. Then I would fall asleep on the pew or on the floor in the corner. And I would sleep four or five hours while church continued and then wake up and preach again. And my wife is here and she's with this broadcast and others that were there can testify to that effect. It was not uncommon. 
Um, and, um, you know, we had church for over a year. We had church every night and, uh, and it, it just, didn't, and it wasn't, it wasn't because I wanted to. In fact, I tried not have church, but very came very quickly. If I didn't show up for church, they were. And so I suspect they did not have all the distractions that we find ourselves with too. There was no movie theaters. The only thing that they had for entertainment really was television. And, uh, um, and television and alcohol. And the two were a bad combination, uh, leading to one of the major social ills in that part of the world is suicide. And I believe it was a direct product of those two items. But so they had no, yeah, there was no, you know, very, very few other things to do. And so, yeah, they, church was a form of entertainment. It was also, they like to come to our church because I encourage spiritualism. Now, don't take that in the wrong context, but understand that missionaries, non-Pentecostal missionaries had tried to stop their inclination towards spiritual type worship. They, they were forbidden mm -hmm. to use their drums, their dances, their, and you know, here comes this white skinny preacher who says, go home and get your drums. Let's all dance. Let's all do a dance, you know? And, 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 and so the things that they had been actually forbidden by missionaries for over a hundred years, I come incorporating them as part of, of what I was doing. And I mean, I'll leave it up to you to be decide whether that's right. But, um, that's very much part of Pentecostal culture is, is drums. And I, once I realized they liked them, man, I started pushing it. You know, they like to dance. They like to drums. They like to worship. And, um, and you know what? God seemed to like it because he was sure filling a lot of people with the Holy Ghost and doing a lot of miracles. <laughs> and so, yeah. you know, you talk about playing. I mean, church was a playground. And we It's amazing saw, what happens when you don't know you can't do something, huh? That's exactly right. And I mean, we saw, I, I personally saw blind eyes open, deaf ears stop, people that had not walked for decades walked. Um, I've laid my hands on tumors as big as a, as big as a grapefruit and had them disappear under my hand. Not, to, and it was not because of my westernized faith, I guarantee you. It was because they believed. They strongly believed. And because they did, God honored it. And God honored the simplicity of their faith. All right, folks, if so, you've got questions, start typing them in. Help us out by prefacing your question with the word question. And uh, so, Desi, I'm looking over. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking I'll take an easy one. Uh, Scott wants to know, Dr. Payton. I was going to start ever... with that one, too. Yeah, well, why don't you go ahead and read it then, Desi? Okay, so we have a someone watching you online, Dr. Payton. Scott Lucas wants to know, have you ever considered writing a book to chronicle these stories? It's an amazing testimonies that you're just sharing in this little hour. Now, I'm, I'm a former student of Dr. Payton, so is my wife, Rachel. So I know many more stories that I've had the pleasure of hearing over the years from him when I was a former student of his and, and then our friendship that continued after school as he's eaten in our home multiple times. And I agree. At what point are you going to chronicle this so it's preserved? Well, there, 
I have started, of course, I started writing a book when I was there and have worked on it as far as about stories, some of the stories that I told tonight. In fact, that's, I refreshed my memory by going back and reading some of the things that I wrote back then. Um, for me, there's two reasons why that why I, I have not yet I I am a huge opponent of rever yeah um, a revisionist history and what I mean by that is the way we tell history is we just tell all the good points and I'm not going to write a book that just tells all the good points. I'm I'm gonna I, when I when I publish a book, if I publish a book that has is a is a narrative of some of my stories, it will include both the good points and the bad points. So and you're gonna include you're gonna include the sewer baptisms along with the right. good baptisms. Well, but I'm gonna include things like uh, I I can't tell my stories without telling the story of. Uh, uh, other people my first marriage i'll just throw myself talking about vulnerability under the bus and uh and for those that are concerned about that she's been dead now for 20 years so regardless of your theology i'm okay so just take a deep breath but um <laughs> uh, but i can't i can't tell my stories without telling you that 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 at the same time all of these stories were going on. I was going through the worst life you can imagine. Because um, it's not fair to the story to just tell you the miracles. There's a lot of valleys I, in there too. Yes. And I would argue that I can, I have the miracle stories because of the valleys. They were not because of the high points. The miracles were the results of the valleys. The times that I, spent the night on my face in the carpet crying out to God um, in my misery. That's what produced the revivals. And understanding that is just not fair. Plus, I don't want to hurt anybody. So I don't know how to, I don't, if somebody knows how to write history without hurting people, true history, I'm not talking about, you know, everything's wonderful and we all just sat around and ate apple pie and did miracles um, type of history. But no, the, the hell as well as the miracles, the, the doubts as well as the faith, uh, the, the embarrassing parts. And so, I mean, I've thought about and I actually have a book written that's got isolated stories. I'm not happy with those isolated stories because they... Well, maybe, maybe Dr. Payton, what you should do is write it, find somebody trustworthy and let it sit in a vault for, say, 50 years or whatever time frame you feel is comfortable. And then, and then publish it. It's ironic as you're talking about the story in this way. And of course, folks, I've heard many a story as well as I have started as a professor in Dr. Payton's life, but then became a colleague. And now he's a dear friend. And, and uh, I don't know how we're dear friends. I have no idea because we are two very different people and yet many things in common. But um, it's interesting because I just secured this, this today our guest tomorrow night. Do you all want to know who, who's coming next Friday? Should I keep it a secret? All right, come on. I need to see clickety-clack on the keys here. Do you want me to tell you? Or do you oh, want me to hold let it? people be surprised. 
Do you want to hold it in? Is that what you want to do, Desi? Well, let's just put it this way. That's, that's I, I, my okay. That's my vote. But all right. Let people I'll let respond, it out without without telling you exactly who it is. But our guest next Friday night is actually going to address the topic of the theology of suffering, where suffering that's and a sacrifice. How does God use theology? How does God use sacrifice and suffering to do His will? I want to be triumphant as a servant of God, which means I don't have suffering and I don't have sacrifice, and unfortunately. I think, Dr. Payton, you would agree with this. That's not the story of how God does his work. He actually right. uses suffering. He uses sacrifice mm -hmm. to do the greatest miracles. And it's it's quite irritating, honestly. And 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 my biggest fear is that if when we write books, and I, I could name a dozen books right now that are on the top of my head that are part of our history, a history that I love, but I've often read those stories. It's part of I, the story. I well, I've, I've read their stories and I've thought I could never be that good. Yeah. Now some of them I also know them, and off the record, they've told me about the suffering and they've told me about the valleys and they told me about the pain. But the book doesn't tell that. So readers read our revised history and say, "I can't serve God like that." Right. I, that person looks perfect. And to me, I'm fearful. I'm really fearful that a revised history does more damage to the kingdom than it does help. Because it creates an environment where people cannot see how they could ever be that good. And if we're not careful, the wrong characters in the story get glory when you step... Yeah. When, when you share a story that only has the high points. All right, Desi, where are we going next? What question you want to take? Well, we've got a few other questions that were in here. And so we can either, let, let's continue down this road. You mentioned baptism. And so Leela Cooper asked, do you know that there's a baptism solution in place in these communities now in Alaska? So you're talking about when you were, a missionary there 20 plus years ago and how you had to come to an understanding that water's not readily available to baptize people the way we take it for granted here so is there a more permanent solution in place now or yes well it's still a struggle it's there's a two-part solution that is well established now um and i just did some research today but there are there are there are three four five United Pentecostal Church is now in the land I once was. And I'm not talking about Good. small churches. I'm talking about these are established churches with buildings and baptismal. In the, in the, among the Yupik people? Right. Correct. Some okay. of them pastored by, by Yupiks themselves and some pastored by um, outsiders. Um, so that's obviously one solution. You can take them. They don't have to go to Anchorage. They can go to Bethel. So if you're in Eek, that's just 80 miles. It's not 480 miles. Um, it's, you know, it's a, it's a hundred dollar ticket, not an $800 ticket. So that's, a, that's one solution. The other solution that uh, I was looking at today, and, and actually I was looking at a video, Christmas for Christ video from, uh, from, uh, I can't remember, I think New, Nunavik uh, church, UPC church, uh, he, he was on the film strip, or not the film strip, but the 
Christmas for Christ film here a couple of years ago. And he was using a product that I actually went and looked online at today that is actually very similar to what I made, but it's metal. As a portable baptistry? It's a portable. It has a pre-made lining. So it's not, you know, it's not just a, uh, a plastic tarp as I used, but it's, um, and it's got a metal frame. Obviously I used a wood frame, um, but a metal frame I could see. And, and therefore it doesn't need quite so much of the dowels type crib stuff that I made before. Plus because it, the liner is one piece and it's sewed corners, it, the water kind of holds itself. So, so it kind of, whereas mine was just a, a sheet, flat sheet that was tucked down in there. No way it would hold water without a frame. This would actually hold water as long as nobody stepped on the side. It would hold water, but then the, the metal frame uh, allows you to have a a side that you can hold on to when you mm -hmm. get in. So yeah, there's and it and it collapses uh, to a very small. You gotta understand uh, the missionary planes. Both we had a missionary plane, and and several of the churches there do now. Um, their planes are small, two what, what we call a two and a half seater. So you know. Two big adults or two smaller adults with a child-sized adult can fly in them, or two adults in a baptismal tank the size of a five-gallon drum, a five-gallon bucket. Um, so these collapse down, and 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 so they're, and they're being used by. In fact, there's several pictures on uh, on, uh, on online that you can look at to see these these baptismal tanks. And so there is a permanent solution now, and I thank God for that. Obviously, dear, when I was there. Nobody baptized when I was there by immersion, um, or or they just didn't. Of course, very few churches in the world believe in the essentialness of baptism. Many churches baptize; they just don't believe it's essential. If it's not essential, as in as in part of the salvation process. For those and if it's not essential, not and familiar it's with those below, terms. If it's not essential and it's sixty below, you tend to avoid it. You know, when, when it's 60 below, you only do what's essential. Um, so. Dr. Payton, you, you can't see the chat. Um, Viv Imereso from Australia mentions that they have a portable bapti baptismal that they use at a daughter work in Kilcoy, a canoe. That's kind of cool. I, think I heard that from Kim when she was in my class. Yeah. Uh, when we were talking about it at that point, um, then, you All know, right. and it, we've thought of different things while we were there. You know, we could, I tried to get one guy to empty his freezer, you know, he had a <laughs> full, of freezer full of meat. I said, I bet that freezer a whole water and he wouldn't have empty the freezer. So we had to come up with a different solution. All right, Desi, we got time for maybe one or two more quick questions. We 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 do want to be conscious of time. Well, you folks, you, the audience has been great, and we don't want to stay our overstay our welcome. So, where do we want to go? I, next? I don't know that we even have time for one or two. Honestly, Stephen, we got one minute, so I will close out with one minor question. I suspect that this is a very very personal question, but since we're doing this live, and you can't really deny it, Dr. Payton, we have a guest on tonight. And this guest, somebody by the name of Jody. Jody wants to know, when are you coming back to visit your sister? <laughs> I was just there four months ago, so five months ago. And 
I'm I'm guessing there's probably a, a family relationship here. Yes, huh? that's my sister. That's my my youngest. Uh, both my sisters are younger than me, and uh, she, everybody's my, younger than you, right, Peyton? No, I got two <laughs> older brothers. Well, I I was pretty sure I wasn't going to say this, but in the chat it says Jody Peyton Tanner. So I, I was pretty sure this was a family relative. But Jody, we're glad you could be with us tonight, even if it was just to to see the interview with your brother. So. Notice, Jody, he didn't answer the question. He just said, I was there four months ago. <laughs> I don't know what's happening in the world. <laughs> all right, folks. Well, we are right at 759. So let me say to all of you, thank you so much for being with us. If you are a part of our congregation, thank you for being with us for our, our inaugural Friday night with friends. We will be doing this every Friday night. Our daily broadcasts, we do not broadcast on Monday. We take a Sabbath one day off, but Tuesday through Sunday, we broadcast every night, 7 p.m. on Wednesday nights for one hour, on Friday nights for one hour, and Wednesdays and Fridays are live. Again, all this information you can find at our church website, newarcupc.info. And as I have taken to saying to all of you, thank you, Dr. Payton, for being with us. Thank you, Desi, for helping me co-host. And until we see you again tomorrow night, I say to all of you, Good night. Thank you for having me. Hi to all my family. Thank you, Hi, folks, mom. for joining. And your daughters. They're watching, too. Yes, yeah, so my daughters, my mom, everybody that's out there. God good night, everyone. Have a good night.